You're listening to Good Poetry, the podcast about exactly that. My name is Andrew Coons. Influences are what make writers who they are. My guest today is Scott Edward Anderson, a poet who has had amazing mentors and influences throughout his career. Well, Scott, thank you very much for joining me today, for agreeing to, to chat. Just want to kind of start by getting a little bit more context on you and, you know, what got you into writing, uh, writing poetry. Uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So I started writing poetry actually at the age of nine, um, encouraged by a woman who helped raise me for the first, I don't know, eight years of my life, um, Gladys Taylor. And... Um, she was a retired uh, teacher and kind of took me under her wing and I was a little bit of a protege of hers growing up. She wrote two short books uh, about my exploits and uh, I still have them actually um, that uh, were quite fun. And uh, But she had a love of, uh, of poetry. She used to recite Robert Burns. I can just I can still picture her and hear her reciting it with this doing her best brogue in the standing in her living room, uh, which was really like a, a library. It was filled with books and art, and she um, uh, these ginormous um, crossword puzzles that she and her companion were always uh, in some stage of completion on on a table in that room, and I, it it really was a f- incredible experience. She. Uh, I always used to say, you know, that book, um, everything I learned, I learned from ki- in kindergarten. I used to say everything I learned, uh, I learned from Gladys Taylor because she 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 taught me so much, and she used to take me out into the um, into the woods and into the fields, and um, we'd crawl around on the grass and we'd dig up dirt and put it in a run it through a bur- uh, Burley's funnel later on to see what would come out of it, and um, she used to make me take she used to. We used to collect leaves and acorns and and uh, anything that we could find, bring it back, and then she'd ask me to to match them up and and then tell me describe the tree under which we found the the, the leaves and things like that. It was really quite an education. Um, and I wrote a poem uh, about her, dedicated to her, uh, in which I talk about that, called the Postlude, which appeared in my first. Uh, full-length collection called Fallow Field. And uh, someday I'll write a book about her and how she, um, the, the full full extent of her, uh, her education of me, but it was uh, quite a remarkable start. So that's pretty much where I, I got my love of poetry and, 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 and then became a voracious reader of it and started writing it. Um, thankfully, none of those original efforts survive. So <laughs> well, I think that's super interesting that you, you, kind of can point to a specific person um, who mentored you um, and introduced you to, to poetry and, and helped foster that love, as I'm sure she fostered a love of a lot of different things um, in you. And, I, and I, I find that particularly interesting because this idea of a mentor when it comes to the arts is, I'm not going to say it's completely lost nowadays because that's just too jaded of a thing to say, but, but I think it is, like, especially when I think about poetry, maybe the reason that a lot of people nowadays are like, ah, I don't have time for poetry. Ah, I'm not really into poetry. Like they're not having that influential person come alongside them and, Hey, this is cool. <laughs> right. And share, sharing a, a love of it because, uh, you know, I think we get into school and the way they teach poetry in school is just, just terrible. I mean, it just turns so many people off from it. There's no, 
um, there's no enjoyment, um, which I think is, it's really lacking in the education. I mean, that, that said, I did have two high school English teachers who, once they learned that I was interested in poetry, started to encourage it in me and, and share books with me and share poets and bring up, bring up, uh, different poems to me, to my attention. Uh, one of, one of my, um, English teachers in high school, uh, David Taddeo was his name. He handed me uh, a book, um, which became very influential, uh, called Kicking the Leaves by Donald Hall, which, uh, came out when I was about 15 and, uh, he had, he, he, he gave it to me. It was a gift. And, um, I read it. And at that time I was really, really interested in, uh, uh, French romantic poetry and, and the beat generation poets and Donald Hall's work was so different. It was very formal and, uh, set in new England where I grew up. So I could really relate to the landscape and what he was talking about and the sort of generational aspects of, uh, of his work writes a lot about his grandparents and in particular a farm in uh, New Hampshire that was, that really resonated for me. So it kind of changed the direction of my interest in poetry and got me away from the kind of Allen Ginsberg first thought, best thought, uh, to being more concise and, um, really, uh, paying attention to the craft, um, which is, which is really, uh, has, has really been helpful to me over the years. Um, and I think has led me to really pay attention to what I'm, what's, what's happening in the poem and, and try to listen to, to, uh, individual poems and where are they going? Where, what are they were trying to say and try to get the author out of the way, if you will. What are maybe some of the things that, that Gladys particularly did when she was reading or teaching you poetry that, you know, you could contrast against what a modern school might do? Like, like what would be that advice to a, to an English teacher nowadays that you would offer based on your experience? Yeah, I think what, what she did was she never explained it. <laughs> she never tried to explain what's the poet, what's the secret the poet is trying to reveal. What she was trying to impart was just a love of the sound and the language. And, and when, when she would stand up and, and recite, poems, you could just see the joy that she had and the pleasure that she had in, in speaking them, you know? And I think that, um, it was interesting because I remember, uh, probably right, right around that time. Um, I, tr I had to recite a poem in school and one of her favorite poets uh, was Walt Whitman and she loved to re to recite poems from uh, from leaves of grass and uh, i remembered her recitation of o captain my captain and so i decided that would be the poem that i would choose and it's very very dramatic so it was perfect for for middle school you know <laughs> or uh, actually it was even it was it was still grammar school then um so uh it was kind of perfect for for that and and I think that led to my love of performing poetry too although I I, I don't recite necessarily I tend to read um, it definitely gave me a sense of of, of the act of uh, of performing poetry so. one thing that's coming out here in this conversation that's interesting to me is this this idea of a balanced view on different things because you talk about you know first thought best thought but then also like okay 
that can yield some stuff, but let's also talk about craft. Let's talk about how yeah. po- how poems sound in addition to just how they're how you know the the imagery or whatnot that they're creating. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which is something that I know I do personally, like as I'm writing a poem, I'm like saying it out loud and like, does that line work verbally or not? Um right. so that appeals right. to me. But I'm just curious, like in, in your years since since the age of nine writing poetry like what what have you found to be kind of the key for for finding that balance and for keeping kind of a I'll, I'll say like an open mind on many different styles and approaches yeah i think it's just like i said before sort of listening to where the the poem wants to go paying attention to where the poem wants to go um i, I wrote a did a talk actually um at the university of alaska anchorage uh back in 90 I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. It was 1998. And in which I took a poem of mine called Black Angus Winter. And um, I went through a bunch of different early, you know, early versions of it and kind of looked, examined it for the, the changes that I made in the editing process, the revision process that led it to the end point um, where it actually was part of a group of poems that won the Nebraska Review, Review Award. And um, and then I also took a poem of Donald Hall's called Oxcart Man, largely because there were, well, I think he had probably maybe upwards of 40 different versions of it and um, during his editing process. And I got his permission. We'd been corresponding over the years, and I got his permission to, um, to use it in this talk. And the University of New Hampshire Special Collections Library had had posted um, a number of the um, uh, revisions online. So I had access to those and was able to make slides of them and uh, be able to, uh, to share that with, with the audience, which was, which was really interesting. But I think um, what I, what I was trying to impart in that talk was um, that um, you really have to, we really have to pay attention to where a poem wants to go and, and, and get the, author out of the way you know so so it's because it's not really what we're trying to say there's in in the best poems i think the poem itself is is trying to communicate there's a uniqueness to that um that i don't know that i see in other art forms all the time in that like you know a, a song written by a particular musician it's just never quite the same if someone else sings it or you know, a book very much carries the style of that author. Um, but I but I would venture to say that a lot of great poetry, you know, can stand independent of that person and be changing with the times and all those things. And that's not to, to denigrate other art forms and say that they don't do that in their own way. But, but there is a uniqueness to poetry that I've found that is timeless and impersonal in, in a good way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. Uh, when you get outside of like the confessional poets and, and um, which were definitely more individual and personal um, and, and because poetry tends to tackle more universal themes, I think. And um, I think the best poems really do speak to the reader and the reader makes, completes the poem, makes the, uh, the, the, you know, completes the circle from the author through the poem to the reader in a way that I don't think you can do with a song um, because it's, it's an, there, it's always an interpretation of a song. 
you know, a Bob Dylan song done by the birds is an interpretation of a Bob Dylan song. And the birds make it their own and certainly um, took it in a different direction, say for with Mr. Tambourine Man or, or uh, you know, some of the other songs that they covered of Dylan's. But it's still a Bob Dylan song at the, at the end of the day. Yeah, it's fascinating. And there's that, there's that whole idea of poetry is uh, an incredibly interactive art form as well, whether you're doing spoken word and listening to it or that reader is completing it. Um, I would love to hear uh, one of your poems. Uh, I believe you're going to read from your book uh, entitled Dwelling, an eco-poem. Yeah. So let me, I'll start with um, the first. So the book is divided into three sections. There's a sequence of poems um, that wrestle with the the concept of dwelling and um and and in, in particular wrestle with a an essay by Martin the philosopher Martin Heidegger called building dwelling thinking and then there's a section of of prose questions uh, short essays um that pick up on themes within the uh, within the the poem sequence and then across the bottom is um a sequence of short poems that are definitions and looking at the etymology of the word dwelling. So, um, and there were some surprising, um, as I looked into that, surprising meanings and, and um, uh, I kind of experiment with those a little bit. But I'll start with, um, I'll start with a poem that opens up the sequence and it's called um, Becoming. Becoming. Say that childhood memory has more relevance than yesterday. A moose calf curled up against the side of a house. Merely saying it may make it so. The way a sunflower towers over a child, each year growing shorter. A hermit crab crawling out of a coconut. Or no, the child growing taller. Naming the childhood memory bears witness to his knowing. A hawk swooping over a stubble field. Imagining the earth, the earth is all before me, blossoming as it stretches to the sun. A red eft held aloft in a small pink hand. Is home the mother's embrace? A cabbage butterfly flitting from flower tops. Do we carry home within? The child sees his world or hers stroking the furry back of a bumblebee, head full of seed until it droops, spent, ready to sow the seeds of its own becoming. Say that our presence in the world, a millipede curling up at the slightest touch, is in making the book of our becoming. So that poem, um, just um, when my oldest uh, child, um, my son Jasper, was born, he was born in Alaska, where I worked with the Nature Conservancy. So a lot of the uh, a lot of the imagery in this poem comes from experiences that I had in nature. Uh, with my son, mostly in in, in Anchorage, but also uh, there's a couple of uh, references to um, some some things we experienced in uh, in Hawaii. Uh, and then the the uh, the furry back of the bumblebee was uh, something that I learned from from Jasper. He was probably I don't know two and a half years old or so, and um, I saw him really literally stroking the back of a bumblebee with his index finger. And I, at first I panicked. I was like, Oh, don't touch the bee. Jasper, he'll sting you. And then he said, no, no, Papa, you, you can, you can rub the back of a bumblebee. And he just continued to just pet it. And, 
And then later on, I I looked it up, and sure enough, bumblebees don't sting. So uh, and they actually they actually they actually enjoy that uh, little petting. So oh my gosh, <laughs> that was pretty interesting. He's having so that, that me moment of connection him. with nature that's yeah. like is transcendent upon what we would like. You'd look and go, oh danger, right? And he's just in right. it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that poem. We're, I, I want to break down the poem a little bit, um, <laughs> even though a lot of times you can just let something something sit. But that poem to me brings up a very interesting question, and it's this idea that the validity and the importance of our childhood outweighs a lot of times large stretches of our adult experience. Um, that's that's kind of where my mind went with it. And I think there's this almost condensed, saturated life experience that happens in childhood. And obviously, we all know that, you know, a good or bad childhood affects you for a lifetime. Um, and, you know, childhood traumas or childhood experiences have a big effect. But I also think, and I'm curious to get your thought on this, that there there is a tendency in our culture to, well, you're just a kid or that's not, you know, get, you know, you, you got to learn certain things. You got to get through the childhood so you can be an adult. And it's we're always looking forward. And it's not that we necessarily want to live in the past, but an honoring of those early years and to say, I, I was the same person that I am now, just younger. Those experiences are just as valid. Yeah, no, I think that I think I think that's true. I think there's, um, you know, my own experience um, as, a, as a child, I spent a lot of time on my own in the outdoors. And I mean, that's was just a, by virtue of the fact of when I grew up, I think, Um in the 60s and 70s and um we had a lot more freedom then you know to roam around and so um and i, I read a little bit about this in in, in my latest book the following up a memoir of second chances um talking about or comparing the experience that my children have had in the natural world with what i had and you know large you know, days and days of unstructured play, you know, out, out in nature or whatever. And, and really no connection. My parents, you know, couldn't, didn't even know where I was most of the time, <laughs> just open up the door and kick you out and you know, come back for dinner. Um, and so, um, I ended up, you know, learning a lot, um, on my own being, able, you know, being exposed to different things, getting into trouble, you know, in some cases, um, you know, walking through, uh, you know, a, a muddy bog, not really knowing what I was getting myself into at one point, you know, at one point and getting stuck and having to get my, get my feet out of the, <laughs> out of the muck and get back onto dry land. Um, whereas I think, you know, the tendency as a parent is just like, Oh no, no, don't, you know, don't, don't let them walk out into the, into the mud. And I can remember when, when, uh, when my son Jasper was was really little in Alaska, and uh, we lived in Anchorage, and the, the mudflats, when the when the tide went out, the tidal mudflats would be exposed. And I used to let him wander out onto the tidal mudflats, and I remember some parents uh, coming by, uh, walking by on the trail, and saying, um, "Oh, you know, you shouldn't let your kid out there. You know, he's going to get stuck, and then the tide's going to come in." And I'm like, "Wow, that's really, it's really quite a quite a stretch there, you know, <laughs> to go to go that deep into it and be so panicked and so so afraid of uh, the experiences of the world. I mean, that it was really not that much, you know. I knew what the tides were." 
Um, you know, it, was, it weren't coming in anytime soon. You know, <laughs> if anything, it was going out. Um, and yeah, there are certain times when you wouldn't want to be stuck out on the mud like that. But you know, getting stuck in the mud is kind of a fun experience. You know, and like you know, why uh, um, you know limit your your exposure, your ch- children's exposure to what's safe and um, uh, not scary. You know, that's it's a, a very it, I think it, it makes us a little more sheltered um, as, as human beings if, we, if we're not exposed to it. And perhaps that's what's cut people off from the natural world, you know, from the, they're disconnected, which is, which is what my book Dwelling is trying to deal with. Like, how do, we, how do we reconcile the relationship we have with where we live on the earth? So part of the title of that book uh, is Dwelling an Ecopoem. Um, tell, tell me what an ecopoem is. Well, I can read you actually the the portion of the essay which I explain what my uh, because there are lots of different interpretations of eco poems and eco poetry there's a whole discipline around eco poetics um, in in the academy um, and if I can read a little bit from the question of the eco poem I might get a sense of uh, of what I think of it as a, um, as a concept the question of the eco poem the eco-poem should have those things in it that will bring forth truth to the reader. Earth brought forth through bird song, recognizable trees, oaks, spruce, maple, hemlock, ponderosa pine. The spirit of bear, coyote, wolf, or big cats these hills have not seen for years. The eco-poem should furnish wildflowers for the tame to ponder and terrible storms for lovers of thunder. And when the snow comes and winter's expectation rises, the eco-poem will sing until spring. Mountains can appear, or hills that roll and loll and calm our souls. Leaves will fall and rustle, the sounds and smells of our return to school each year as children. Rivers, too, should resound, the lakes, ponds, and oceans as well. Then, too, the eco-poem should speak of love, or rather show it, and bring it forth for all to see. And desire, the dream of the earth is all about desire, as everything is about desire. And familiar animals, domestic cats and dogs, a well-worn path leading to the cottage garden, or city streets in the heat of summer or in the rain. Summers set by the rhythms of cicadas heard by the lake, diving off cliffs 20 feet high to deep pools of water below. The eco-poem should be a bellwether of memory, a repository, saying the unsayable. It should use language to evoke the gods, or at least our better nature. It should also include the terrors and horrors of nature, the terrible things creatures do to each other, parasites and carnivorous plants, poisonous snakes and stink bugs, nature, warts and everything. I think what is really standing out to me with that uh beautiful definition is you know truth is a balance of all things it is the the beauty and the terror it is the the, the sunshine and the rain it's like you can't cherry pick what you're wanting to necessarily talk about nature's nature's as fierce as it is beautiful um and if you're writing a true eco poem you're gonna honor that yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's true. I mean, there's there's there, 
it isn't all just uh, flowers and sunshine and you know beautiful things. Nature's um, can be a can be a dangerous place, and um, our exposure to it. Um, I think we've kind of walled ourselves off from that experience uh, over time, and I think um, you know one of the things that pe- people talk about. Well, if you have um, if you're if you're observing the natural world, you're not a part of it. But uh, I think what I'm trying to do with dwelling is say, you know, we can't escape the fact that we're part of it. You know, we've tried, and we try to we try to set up these constructs where we, you know, can can keep ourselves immune. But um, at the end of the day, we're we're still animals, and we're you know, and so we're part of it, and. Um, and I think if we can repair that, if we can bring that back, um, and then, then maybe we can get to a point where we can start to heal, both heal the earth, which we've been destroying for so long, um, but also ourselves. How, you know, this is kind of a big question, but how do you think that we start to make those steps back towards a place of balance? I mean, man in his very nature is is, you know, he likes to expand, he likes to build, he likes to create. And, you know, we've seen technology take us to a point where you and I can have this conversation, <laughs> you know, halfway across the country. But along with that also comes urbanization and people not getting into nature, people destroying nature. Like, I'm just curious as to your thoughts on, on what it's going to take to restore that balance and what, what, what the role of maybe the artist within all of that is. Yeah, I think, well, I think that um, if we can figure out a way to use the technology for for good, um, and, and not for distraction. Um, maybe we can start paying attention the way we need to, uh, to bringing things back to, um, to some equilibrium. I mean, the, the, the fact is nature's always changing. There's a lot of changes in the landscape that are, are not man-made that they're, you know, but we've done throughout our, our history on the planet, we've changed the earth in, 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 you know, in some cases, um, ways that um, that have benefited, certainly. Um, but more often than not, it's a, it's been a destructive a destructive force. Um, but I, and I again, I think that's partly because we've considered ourselves somehow uh, apart from nature, and we've considered ourselves superior to it. And but we've lost. The kind of um, the stewardship component of of um, of uh, of our relationship, you know, we really have have uh, abdicated that. I think um, to you know a small fraction of the of the people on the planet. I mean, in some cases, development is 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 essential because you try you need to sustain people either through agriculture or shelter or um, you know, technological advances, but um, we can't forget that we have a. With that, we have a responsibility, um, you know, to be good stewards. Hundred um, percent. I would like to talk a little bit about uh, your memoir uh, that just came out, Falling Up, and just I, I would love to just kind of hear the story behind that, and um, yeah, a little bit about what it's about. So. Uh, it's called Following Up, A Memoir of Second Chances, and um, it starts with um, 
kind of a critical uh, juncture in my life in uh, 2011, um, and and actually it's a critical juncture for a lot of people. I think coming out of the last um, economic crisis and uh, some of the changes that had had occurred, um, the book actually opens with a, a scene in which I'm uh, speaking to uh, a group at a conference called um, South by Southwest Eco, which was uh, the first um, ecologically centered conference put on by the South by Southwest folks who do uh, the, the music and culture fest- festival every year. And um, uh, I had to speak to to this audience early in the morning. I was one of the first talks on the morning, as it turned out, that Steve Jobs had died. Oh, wow. And I, as I was preparing for the talk, I heard the news. And I realized that most of the people in the audience had no idea. And so I was going to be—I was going to be the one telling them this news. And I thought, well, you know, I, I started looking at my notes for my talk, and I thought, well, this is totally irrelevant. How can I talk about this? How can I do that? <laughs> you know. So um, I opened the book with um, the sentence: "Steve Jobs is dead." I said. A collective gasp went through the audience. We all knew he'd been sick. His seven-year battle with pancreatic cancer was well covered by the media. Still, the news of his death that morning was a shock. The Apple co-founder, or excuse me, the Apple founder, I guess he was co-founder. Anyway, we can edit that out. The Apple founder, perhaps the most consequential tech CEO in history, had transformed our lives in so many ways, and now he was dead. He was 56 years old. In that relatively short lifespan, he'd accomplished so much. Arguably, many of us were at this conference, a gathering of some of the best and brightest from the worlds of technology, culture, and sustainability, because of his example. He touched so many, regardless of whether we used Apple products. Indeed, he had inspired a lot of people at the conference and around the globe to devote themselves to changing the world for the better. 56. As I stood on the stage that October morning in 2011, a couple of years shy of my 50, of 50 myself, I couldn't help thinking, as perhaps many in the room were thinking too, in the wake of the example of Jobs, what have I done with my life? Have I lived up to my full potential? Have I done everything I could to make the world a better place? Isn't that why we're here? Not just here at this conference, build his three days to save the earth, but on the planet itself. Perhaps everyone in the room, like me, weighed their achievements, their aspirations, and how they had lived their lives. And perhaps, like me, everyone wondered how they wanted to spend the rest of the time on their planet. So I sort of opened it up with that. And um, and then as I'm trying to wrestle with, like, what am I? I'm there to speak on, um, you know, uh, sustainability and 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 changing the way we think about financial services and things like that. And I'm thinking, I just can't, how am I supposed to talk about this with everybody? With everybody, all the, all, everybody's thinking is, you know, about Steve Jobs. So I had a moment of silence for, for Steve Jobs. And then I realized that um, everybody in the room was kind of as anxious about this as I was. So I thought, well, maybe I can share a story with them that um, had some resonance for me. Um, Something that happened to me uh, when I was 15. Um, I was hiking in Letchworth Gorge in upstate New York, and I um, I fell. And um, so I'd share that story 
And then I connected it to a story that Steve Jobs used to share, um, which was a kind of defining story for him about uh, stumbling into a calligraphy class at Reed College after he dropped out. So he wasn't even supposed to be on the campus, but he just decided to audit, you know, this class on calligraphy. And it changed the way he thought about, well, how he saw the world, which is kind of an objective you have with poetry is like, you know, trying to change the way people see the world through, you know. And so the fact that he had, had done that led him to create movable type for um, – uh, proportional type faces for 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 the Mac. Later on, he realized, you know, that that was it was that one class that changed it. And the interesting connection with Reed College um, is that uh, I studied with with Gary Snyder, uh, who was a Reed College graduate. Um, I think he graduated in '51, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, um, and. Um, and he had taken that same calligraphy class. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty interesting. But um, yeah, I mean, it's this, you know, thinking about, well, there you go. There's this, there's, there's a, um, a technology and a technologist um, who I think, you know, whatever you, whatever you think about Apple products these days, um, he, I think was, had a, he had a, he was a visionary and he had um, Steve Jobs. And I think that he had, uh, um, Pretty, pretty significant impact uh, because of the way he he viewed the world, and now his wife is carrying on his uh, his legacy and um, actually supporting uh, climate change as a, a major focus of, of her foundation. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, and it's interesting that you you know you said that it's the same thing that we're trying to do with poetry, and that's change the way someone views something. Um, and I think to the cynic who maybe says, well. What is a writer really going to do? What's a poet really going to do in the face of all these practical, like, got to get my hands dirty type things? It's like, well, there are people who need to get their hands dirty. There's people who need to, to build things and, and farm and change things and plant trees. And there's people who need to write the words that inspire those people to go out and do that. And we all play different parts in this kind of organism that is humanity. Yeah, and it's it's interesting when... Um, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with um, Bill Murray's um, reading poetry to construction workers, uh, uh, which is wonderful video. I have not seen that, but I'm going to go look for that. (laughs) Yeah. So Bill Murray has been involved in in Poets House for a number of years, which is an incredible library of poetry in, in Manhattan. And um, was started by Stanley Kunitz and Elizabeth Cray. And um, he's been involved. I think he's, he's – if he's not on the board, he's in an advisory capacity. But when they were building their, their – the uh, site that they're in now, um, he actually went out and recited poems to construction workers and got them to, to, to read the poems as well. And it's just brilliant. It's just brilliant, and it's really fascinating to watch how the you know how they received it. Um, it's typically, kind of you know arms crossed to, at first, but then they they soften up and they loosen up, and and they hear what he has to say. Plus, it's also the delivery of Bill Murray. So uh, you know, it that, sounds that like helps. a very Bill Murray thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very Bill Murray thing to do. <laughs> well, I would love to hear another one of your poems um, from Dwelling, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, let me let me tie this uh, tie this together with uh, a poem um, called "Healing," because uh, we were talking about healing, 
and um, it actually starts, it uh, opens with a, um, a, a line, um, which I also use as an epigraph uh, from Gary Snyder, which reads, healing, not saving. Healing. Healing, not saving. For healing indicates corrective, reclaiming, restoring the earth to its bounty, to right placement and meaning, forward thinking, making things new or better, or at least bringing back from the edge. The way bulbs are nestled in earth, starting to heal again. The way a wound heals. Keep warm, sun following rain, rain following drought. Perhaps we have come far enough along in this world to start healing, protecting from harm, from our disjunctive lives. The way the skin repairs with a scab, injury mediated by mindfulness. The bark of the tree of blood heals wounds we cannot see. Deliver us from the time of trial and save us from ourselves. That last line, uh, save us from ourselves, speaking of uh, financial services, actually this poem ties together a bunch of things. So um, a gentleman named John Bogle who started Vanguard Funds, um, he uh, he was speaking uh, at this conference at one point, and I went up to him afterwards, and um, my I was working for the Nature Conservancy at the time, and the CEO was a guy named John Sawhill, and I, and John Sawhill was uh, was on the board of Vanguard Funds at the time. So I went up to uh, to Mr. Bogle afterwards, and I said, uh, "Well, I work for one of your board members," and he said, "Oh, who's that?" He just did, had no idea who I was going to who I was going to mention, and I said, "Oh, it's John Sawhill." He said, "Oh, the Nature Conservancy. I love the Nature Conservancy." And he shook my hand, and I started to walk away, and he said, "Scott, wait a minute. I have one more thing to say to you." And I he he said, "Save us from ourselves." And I thought, "Wow, that's really powerful," um, and I asked him if I could use it. Uh, and I ended up writing a, a fundraising fundraising letter uh, using his uh, his words, uh, which which helped us raise a lot of money. Actually, you know, earlier in our conversation, we talked about that idea of of structure in poems, and and I think what's interesting hearing you read a piece like that is it it falls in you know the the free verse kind of area of not needing to to rhyme or this or that, but the, but there is a sense of cadence and there is a sense of, of structure to the lines. Um, I'm just curious because there's a lot of new poets um, who have you know very much embraced Ginsburg and free, free verse poetry and all this stuff. And, um, but I think at the same time, there's, there's a calling out from a lot of these writers to have more structure, uh, you know, and I think we all go through bits. I've you know, I've seen that myself where I've wanted to write very unstructured for a while and then I've wanted to go back to like pure sonnet writing for a while. You know what I mean? Like you, you have tides that you write when. What would maybe be some of your advice to that poet who is maybe just starting out, maybe been doing it for a while, but is kind of been just doing their own thing and now is looking to to shore up some of their technique and some of that craft? Mm, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's... Uh... It's interesting that right now this is a time when there's so many different forms and people people pushing the envelope of forms. I'm thinking of Terence Hayes with uh, with sonnets and um, his his uh, 
at least two collections where he's really pushed the envelope and pushed the the boundaries of what is a sonnet. And um, I think that uh, it's really it, 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 that comes from a place where he, while he's experimenting with the form, really understands the form to begin with. You know, so so you have I, to know I the rule that, to break the rule. Right, exactly, and I think, and I think that's true. Um, I, I mean, I think it's it's an interesting experiment for a writer um, to to play around with traditional forms and try to understand them. And and but um, I know in my in my own case, this is a funny story I'll share about Gary Snyder studying with him um, at the time when I was studying with him. I had uh, it was a couple of years after I'd come back from living in, in, in Europe and Germany and France and, um, tr- trying to learn the la- German language. Uh, I read a lot of German poetry and I thought that would be a good way to learn it. But, uh, what it did was screwed up my English syntax. Um, and so I ended up writing, um, in, in, in a kind of a hybrid form really that was very garbled and very, um, I, I was I called I think I called it um, verbal gymnastics in um, in my uh, that talk that I gave uh, making poems better um, and um, remember studying with Snyder he's he, he couldn't have been further from that you know sort of not formal very very uh, you know outside of uh, Japanese and Chinese poetry poetic traditions he, he typically didn't um spend a lot of time with uh with more traditional european forms and uh so i, I remember he said about my work said well this is pretty good if you want to be an 18th century poet but do you want to be an 18th century poet <laughs> and at the time i was you know still in my 20s and full of hubris and i and i i i, I took offense and i remember right i dashed off a nasty note to him and said well it's you know at least i don't write bear shit on the trail poems <coughs> almost immediately after sending that letter it was uh, i um i regretted it um and then later on in fact one of the poems was was this poem i talk about in making poems better um uh, black angus winter it was um it started out very, very different uh, from where it ended up. And a lot of it was getting the form out of the way and trying to get at the heart of what the poem was trying to say and the language that that, that the poem required uh, to say what I wanted to say. So getting the author out of the way again. And um, he was right. I mean, he was right. I should, you know, I wish I had just you know, it's one of those one of those things where you know now you would you press send on a on 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 the email and you immediately regret <laughs> regret it. But um, uh, uh, later on, uh, actually, just just a couple of years ago, I was ri- I was writing an essay about Snyder, and um, I had to look something up online, and um, in I, I realized that that letter. Sits in the archives uh, at the UC Davis uh, <laughs> in the correspondence of, of Gary Snyder. And, like, oh, great. <laughs> Was hoping he had just, just thrown, thrown it in the trash. But no, he kept it. Decades now it from now, someone will dig that up. Yeah, as there's a researching. Ugh. Anyway. <laughs> but no, I think I think to get back to your question about what, uh, what poets should do, I think thinking about, um, you know, I, I think it's a, 
it's good to know what the traditions are if you're if you're getting serious about um, writing poetry. But at the at the end of the day, you really do have to just listen to what the poem is trying to say, and and the form will come come out of that. I think um, if we pay attention to it, um, I think it's 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 harder to do that because it's, our tendency is to write what we want to say, you know, not listen to not listen to a poem. So Scott, I would love if you could share one last poem with us to close out our conversation today. Great, great. I'm going to share uh, "Shape Shifting" from Dwelling in Eco Poem. Shape shifting. Give the night back to the night, the stars back to the sky. Give the earth, spinning in space, back to the earth. The stars look black tonight. Give the moon. No, keep the moon. It is the stars we want to get back. Give the soil back to the isopod, emerging to the surface. What is it looking for? Give the dawn back her rose-red fingers. She needs them more than the night. Give the blue jay back his morning, taken from him by the chickadee. Sounds are deeper in solitude. Give back to the sunshine what darkness is his. Give back to the night what light is hers. Stars, moon, clouds. Shape-shifting. Blue jay into chickadee, into blue jay. Night into day. Into what? Harassed unrest. Give back to the earth what is hers. She will forgive you for taking it or she will turn into a wolf. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about Scott and his books at scottedwardanderson.com. You can follow Good Poetry on Instagram and Facebook at Good Poetry Podcast. Until next time, happy reading. <laughs>